The text for this morning's sermon, Mark chapter 14, the verses 3 through to 9. Mark 14, 3 to 9, this is the word of God. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's Father, reading of God's holy word in the text here. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's four weeks until the Sunday before Good Friday, and in these coming weeks, we're going to be focusing on the gospel accounts that lead up to the death of our Lord. Mark is a concise and brief gospel. It is most likely the earliest gospel written, and it reflects the testimony the apostolic testimony of the Apostle Peter. And as we begin looking at this chapter, we see there in verse 1, there's a a date marker there. It is two days before the Passover, which means that if you're in the the week of our Lord's death, he died on, on the Good Friday, the Passover began on the Thursday in the evening, and verse 1 of chapter 14 is referring then to the Tuesday. The Tuesday before Good Friday. In a few days, our Lord will shed his blood to wash us clean from all of our sins. And as we begin this chapter, the context is one in which the leaders of God's people, the leaders of the church, are plotting and planning and scheming to kill the Lord of the church to kill the Messiah that the church has been waiting for for thousands of years. They're getting ready to celebrate the Passover, and for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Passover has pictured what the Lamb of God will do to take away the sins of the world, and they just don't get it. While they're preparing to celebrate the feast, they're preparing to destroy him who gives all meaning and significance to the feast. And so look at the context. We've read a large part of chapter 14 so that we can really work with this context. We have one of his 12 closest disciples arranging to betray him. We have three of the leading disciples who are so out of it that they're sitting there sleeping. They're dozing off, not once, not twice, but three times while A short distance from them, Christ is in agony for his life. And they just keep dozing off. They don't get what's happening. And then he is betrayed by one disciple and abandoned by all of them. 
And then the chapter ends with that section we didn't read of the description of him being denied three times by Peter. And so we have in the chapter surrounding our text a bunch of men who are supposed to be Old Testament church leaders and and great New Testament church leaders. Some of them are plotting to kill Jesus, some to betray Jesus. They're failing to support Jesus. They're running away from Jesus, and they're denying Jesus with curses. That's what Peter does at the end of the chapter. He invokes curses and swears, I don't know this guy. Nothing to do with him. That's the context of our text. And amongst all these messed up men, there is one person who understands what has happened. There is one person who sees with the eyes of faith. There is one person who embraces the gospel of the death of the Lamb of God. And that person is a daughter of God. I want to stop for a moment to draw your attention to this fact. That this is one more evidence of the truth of Holy Scripture. Throughout history, and especially from this time period, in the ancient uh, period, when people wrote historical records, they always made themselves look good. They would skim over the negative. They would leave out the embarrassing bits. They would focus on the stuff that elevated them and made them look good. The Bible doesn't do that. Peter does not come out looking good in this gospel, which is a record of his apostolic testimony. The men in general, the leaders of the New Testament church, the pillars and foundation of the New Testament church, they don't come out looking good. A woman puts them all to shame by her faith and her faithfulness. People didn't do that. They don't do it today. They certainly didn't do it back then. And this is just one more evidence amongst many that God's word is not a human work, but it is his perfect truth. And so as we come to our text now, Mark inserts the verses 3 to 9. He inserts the words of our text right here in this context to draw attention to the jarring disconnect between the unrighteous men and the unfaithful men surrounding Jesus in the last days before he comes to the cross, and on the other side, the the righteous and the faithful testimony and acts of the daughter of God in our text. Now, I, I said that he inserts the words of our text because that's exactly what he's doing. Our text didn't happen two days before the Passover. And I won't go into all the details of the chronology. Sometimes it can get complicated. But, but, but he, these verses 3 to 9, he's going back to last Saturday. The chapter starts on the Tuesday before the Lord's death. And our text is reminding us or, or it's recounting to us what happened on the last, last Saturday evening. The day before Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. There was a dinner. And it was in Bethany. And Bethany is about three kilometers east of Jerusalem. So if this was Jerusalem, the church building, Bethany would be by Hogan Road. 
just past the Ray Gibbon there, past those lights. Not that far, it's very close. And we know that the woman in our text, although she's not mentioned by name, we know from John chapter 12 that her name is Mary. It's the Mary who was the sister to Martha and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. That was their hometown. And it was the base of Jesus. Whenever he was in the area of Jerusalem, he would stay in, in Bethany. Now, why doesn't Mark mention her name? Well, none of the gospel writers do except John. None of the gospel writers mention Lazarus and Martha and Mary and where they lived, just John. And the reason is this. We read that in John, right? That the Jews, they were eager to kill Jesus. But they were also eager to kill Lazarus. Lazarus was a, a living proof of the power of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of his person. And so they wanted to kill Lazarus as well. So the earlier gospels don't mention the details of the names and where they live because there were people wanting to harm Martha and Mary and Lazarus. John's gospel is written a lot later when that, that danger is not as great, and so he mentions the details. So there they are. They're in the house of Simon the leper, and that, that means he's obviously not a leper anymore, otherwise they couldn't be in his house. He's another person that's been healed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're celebrating. They're celebrating resurrection. It's, it's a, a less than a week before the Lord Jesus will die, and they're celebrating that he has raised Lazarus. And Lazarus is there. He's one of the guests. Resurrected Lazarus at the table. Now, dear Sister Martha, she's pouring herself out as usual in service to her Lord. There's lots of things to celebrate. And Mary, we know that. Mary's different than Martha. She, she's, she's a very thoughtful, kind of likes to sit there and listen. She's hungry for the word of God. Martha's bustling. Mary's listening. When Lazarus died, it was Martha that rushed out to meet Jesus as he came. Mary just stayed sitting in the house. And when she does move back then, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, she, she runs to Jesus, throws herself at his feet. That's where she wants to be, at his feet. She, she loves Jesus. She wants to be near Jesus. She wants to sit at his feet. She wants to listen to him. But, but in our text here, brothers and sisters, she doesn't just sit, but she acts. She comes in with purpose, and she has an alabaster flask, and the Holy Spirit multiplies the words which kind of signal to us that there's a lot of expense here. An alabaster flask, alabaster, that's expensive. Of nard, that's expensive. Pure nard, that's expensive. A very costly flask, very expensive. And it would have been most likely a, a carefully crafted vessel for this precious perfume with a very thin neck and it would come out just in little drops. It was incredibly expensive. And what does she do? She smashes that neck and pours it over Jesus, over his head, and we learn from John chapter 12, over his feet as well, and she wipes it with her hair. A Jewish woman would not let her hair down in public it was a lack of dignity for her. She doesn't care about her dignity. 
She loosens her hair, and she uses it to wipe the feet of the Savior. This is incredible, powerful fragrance of super expensive perfume filling the house. And if you look ahead to verse 5, it's about 300 denarii, which is roughly a year's worth of work at minimum wage. So you work a minimum wage job for the entire year. You don't spend any of the money. Suck it all away onto the bank. You got at the end of the year $25,000, $30,000. That's how much this ointment cost. A year's worth of labor. And she pours it out in a minute. What would you say if you came into the house and there was a visitor and your wife was pouring $25,000 away down the drain? How would you think about that? That's a lot of money. Isn't that a waste? Can't we use this money for other things? Well, there's certainly people saying that, verse 4. There were some who said said to themselves, you know, why was the ointment wasted like that? As if you could waste anything on worshiping the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Why was it wasted? And we know from John chapter 12, who was behind this attitude, it was Judas Iscariot. It could have been given to the poor, he said, because he wanted that money in the money bag because he liked to skim money from the money bag for himself. And, and, you, and you think, we read John chapter 12 as background reading, but you, you think of, of, of the fact that he was the treasurer of the disciples. The guy that was least trustworthy, the guy that betrays our Lord, he was the man that was taking care of the resources for the group of disciples. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus give him that office? Well, Jesus gave him that office to give him rope to hang himself with. Be careful. There's a warning here. If your heart is unregenerate, and if your service to God is merely outward, and God gives you blessings and privileges and office and responsibility, they will only serve to magnify your judgment and your condemnation. Serving God outwardly, just with the lips, just to fake it, is something which will bring great judgment. And if that's you this morning, you need to repent. You need to ask the Lord for a new heart. We know what happened to Judas. And so Judas starts the questioning and the murmuring and the complaining, but he's not the only one. The disciples, the other leaders of the church, they take up the complaint and they scolded her. Here, our sister Mary has just worshipped her Lord. She's just sacrificed an incredible amount to just show him love and, and worship and adoration, and they scolded her. How often does not that not happen, that, that we take something which seems pious, so that's a waste. How could, we could have used that for the poor. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so pious. And that pious word and the, those pious ideas are used to scold and to have a tone of moral outrage and to put someone down because they did something that we don't approve of. And see how quickly that spreads. You don't want to 
look like a bad person. You don't want to look like you're not virtuous. So somebody's got this tone of moral outrage and is condemning something, and you join in so you can be a good person too. And before you know it, everybody's complaining and scolding. They feel real holy. You're a good person. You don't do that. What a shameful thing, brothers and sisters. And once again, it's clear evidence of the truth of the word of God because the disciples, they're being exposed here as acting very, very shamefully. Here's the fragrance of this act of worship and love and faith and honor of the Son of God. And, and it is attacked by this stench of this poisonous fumes of the greed and and pompous reflexive judgment. These men, who are they to say what they're saying to Mary? These are men, we read chapter 14, these are men who are about to betray the Lord and abandon the Lord and deny the Lord. Mary doesn't say a word. You know, when you... When you do what you do to worship the Lord, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to. He will. He will. And the word of God, look at verse 6, the word of God cuts through all of this false virtue signaling. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. To me, well, wait a minute, Lord. Twenty-five thousand dollars just poured away in a few, in a minute. There are people starving. There are people that need food and and clothing. And Jesus says, "I know, but you will always have the poor with you, and you need to help the poor. You need to show love to the poor. That's part of who you are, as children of God. And throughout the Scriptures." God drills that into his people. If you're really my children, if you reflect my character, you care about the poor and about the vulnerable and about the afflicted. You care. You don't just walk on the other side of the road and ignore them. You love them. You reach out to them. You help them. Because that's what I do. That's who I am. So Jesus says, yes, that's part of who you are. Your daily and, and weekly life as a believer, that's what you do. You love the poor. But this is a one-off. This is a special occasion. You will not always have me here in the flesh. The Son of God is about to be crucified. The Son of God is about to die to take away the sin of the world. This is a hard and painful providence. And nobody understood it. The disciples didn't. The leaders of God's Old Testament church didn't. Even the devil didn't understand what was going on. He thought he was winning. Nobody understands it. It's a hard and it's a painful providence that the Savior is about to die. That the Lord of life is about to be crucified. And all the men in chapter 14 here, they manifest every type of wrong response to what's happening, what's coming up. And Mary's response stands apart. It stands out because she embraces God's providence. She embraces God's plan. She embraces God's will. She knows. Mary knows. 
Mary sees with the eyes of faith what none of the disciples have figured out yet and understood. She knows that Jesus will die, that Jesus must die. She doesn't want her Lord to die. That's not the desire of her heart. But she quietly submits. She submits and she worships. And this last act of honor and love, Jesus says she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, when we look at how Jesus describes what has happened and the consequences of what has just happened, we know that he's not just saying, well, that's a, that's a nice thing that you did there, Mary. Thank you. He's not saying that. This is, this is something very, very significant. It is of cosmic and eternal significance. Look at how our Lord speaks. Look at verse 9. He uses the way he speaks when he's going to say something very, very emphatic, very authoritative, very important, something of vital significance. He, he always uses this phrase, truly I say to you. And when he says that, truly I say to you, 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 you sit up, you pay attention. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her, in memory of her. Wow, that's a high honor that the Son of God gives to Mary amongst all the shame and the failure of the weak and sinful men in this chapter. Jesus raises up this daughter of God to be honored not just there in the context, not just there in the community there, but to be honored in all the world and for all time because, because she will always be known for what she did. Today again, it's being remembered here in St. Albert. And it will be remembered into all eternity. When you meet Mary one day, you will know her. And you will remember, Mary, you're the one who poured that pure nard to anoint the body of our Lord for his burial. You will know her. You will know her and what she did. And you will love her for what she did out of love for her Savior. This is a high honor that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to this daughter of God. And, and it reminds us as we look at her and the honor that the Lord Jesus gives her, it reminds us that throughout salvation history, so many times our sisters in Christ are, are examples of faith and submission to God, often before the men. You think of on Resurrection Sunday, the, the women are the first to meet the resurrected law. They are the first to believe in the resurrection. They are for, the first to proclaim the resurrection. And they are, of course, listed amongst the great heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. And so as, you, as we look at our sister Mary here and the great faith that she demonstrates in her act of worship, the Lord reminds us, of what really makes a woman. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So if you're a parent, that's how you want to raise your daughter, to be a royal daughter of God. 
And if you're a young man looking for a wife, that's the kind of woman you're looking for. A woman who gives everything to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at this text, and as we look at this chapter around it, where do you fit in? What do you identify with? There are different groups of people in here in chapter 14. There are those leaders of the Old Testament church. They're wanting to dismantle every claim of Christ's lordship. And, and Jesus is offensive to that. Is Jesus offensive to you? Are you violently seeking to erase and dismantle any claim that he has on your life? Or are you in that group that plans to betray Jesus? You're just kind of coming along for the ride, but the minute there's 30 pieces of silver to be offered, I'm out of here. Because it's something that's more attractive. Or are you following Jesus by just showing up and being physically there, but you're switched off and kind of dozy and half asleep, and you're just kind of there, but you're too lazy to be engaged? Do you find that? You come to worship and just kind of switch off and then you can't remember much of what's happened when you leave. You're like the disciples there. Or do you run away from Jesus? Are you amongst those who, the minute that following him gets dangerous, the minute that it's hard, the minute that it requires sacrifice, I'm out of here. It's too much. Were you in that group of those who deny him with curses? You think, well, why would I ever do that? Well, brothers and sisters, doesn't take much. When everything's on the line, and when you're going to maybe lose your job and your income and your reputation in the community, maybe even your life, it's real easy to get ashamed of Jesus real quick, like Peter did. Or fear you'll lose. You'll lose out by following him. you lose your status, your job, your freedom, your life. You know, this all comes to a kind of an absurd climax in verses 51 and 52. You see that guy there in verses 51 and 52? He gave up everything not to follow Jesus. Even his clothes, even his dignity. He gave up everything to run away from Jesus, to deny his death. And then look at our sister Mary who gave up a costly sacrifice to prepare him for burial, to honor his death, to worship. That is the kind of faith commitment to which Christ calls us. And the question for us this morning is, what are you willing to spend? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to follow the Lord to worship the Lord. Now, we don't have alabaster flasks of costly nut. I doubt it. I don't think anybody has a $25,000 bottle of perfume in their house. But we have something that's more precious yet. We have hearts full of the love of God poured into us, and we have an infinite supply of that love. And we don't have the body of our Lord right here to anoint, but all around us, we have the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in the body, those who are called to be part of the body, how much are you pouring out? How much are you pouring out to prepare this body, 
not for death, but for glory. Don't be cheap. Don't be stingy. Don't hold back. Break that vessel. Pour it out. Pour out love in the body of Christ. It is beautiful. It is fragrant. It is refreshing. And the consequences are eternal because it prepares the body for the resurrection and the life that never ends. Amen.